Welcome to the documentary on one from RTE in Ireland. In this documentary, the story of one Irish woman in America that became a legendary cautionary tale. It's an episode in history that has all too familiar echoes of our lives today. Narrated by me, Sarah Blake, this is The Curious Case of Typhoid Mary. Walking through St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx, New York, you'll see something unusual at one of the graves. Someone has placed a blue surgical face mask and a bottle of hand sanitizer there. Tucked into the grave itself is an Irish flag. You'll be forgiven for thinking there was a link to COVID-19, but carved into the simple headstone is the name of an Irish woman, once considered the most dangerous woman in America. Her name was Mary Mallon, also known as Typhoid Mary. New York American, June 20th, 1909. Typhoid Mary, most harmless and yet the most dangerous woman in America. It is probable that Mary Mallon is a prisoner for life, and yet she has committed no crime. She was an Irish emigrant and a cook by profession. She has served in the kitchens of many New York millionaires with entire satisfaction for many years. It was the early 1900s and New York City was in the throes of a typhoid fever epidemic, a disease that can have mild or fatal effects depending on who gets it. It was feared as much then as COVID-19 is today. It is possible that Mary Mallon has been the innocent cause of hundreds of cases of typhoid fever and hundreds of deaths. After being tracked down as a super spreader of the disease, Mary, who herself was asymptomatic, refused to cooperate with public health officials and was sentenced to a lifetime of isolation on New York's quarantine island. Before God and in the eyes of decent men, my name is Mary Mallon. I was christened and baptised Mary Mallon. I lived a decent, upright life under the name of Mary Mallon until I was seized by the health department of the city of New York, locked up in a pest house and rechristened Typhoid Mary, the name by which the world has ever since known me. And so began a story rooted in Ireland but played out in the tenements, ritzy addresses, laboratories and courtrooms of New York City. As we find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic, we know only too well the tension between personal choices and public good. My name is Judith Levitt. I am a professor emerita at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Judith Levitt specialises in medical history and women's studies, and is a biographer of Mary Mallon. I taught a course in the history of public health in my career as a professor at the University of Wisconsin. And I always had one class devoted to Mary Mallon because she really represented one of the main dilemmas in public health, and that is how do you maintain somebody's liberty, which is a value in our culture, at the same time as you protect the public's health. And her example was really where those two things come into conflict. But who was this Irish woman, Mary Mallon? Little is known about her Irish roots. The clues we have to work on come from her death certificate, which records her as being Irish, born in September 1869, to parents John Mallon and Catherine Igo. But there is no trace of a birth or baptism record to match these details. Her death cert also notes that she spent 55 years in New York before she died. And she emigrated to America in 1883, so she was about 14 or 15 years old. 
Leanne McCormick is a senior lecturer in modern Irish social history at Ulster University. She describes the New York into which Mary arrived. New York, which was by the end of the 19th century, was growing, was incredibly busy and lots of different languages and all sorts of things going on that you can imagine how daunting that would have been. But I think for Mary, when she arrived, she will have been, you know, assaulted by the vastness of the, the city, the sheer number of people, the sights, the sounds, the smells, and probably ending up in the areas that were associated with Irish populations and working class accommodation. It was a city that was just topsy-turvy, exploding in population. David Rosner is a professor of history and public health at Columbia University, New York. It was largely a city that grew up without an infrastructure. It had no water supply until the 1840s. It had no sewage. It had no central government. This led for an ecological disaster. Human waste, animal waste, stagnant water, no sewage system, leading to enormous outbreaks of disease, specifically cholera and typhoid. Mary came to New York at that very moment when this, the worst of the disaster was kind of striking. And as disease spread, the public health advice given to citizens sounds familiar. By turning the face from the coughing and loud talking of our neighbors, by putting nothing in the mouth except clean food and drink, by never putting the fingers in the mouth or nose, most contagious diseases can be avoided. Wash the hands well before eating and always after use of the toilet. But this was easier said than done in the grimy tenements and overcrowded spaces of New York. She was part of a wave of Irish who came into the city and who were seen as basically not the victims of this world we had created, not the victims of the poverty and the suffering and the lack of infrastructure, lack of housing and the crowding, but she was seen as basically the perpetrators of it. Despite the obstacles, Mary Mallon set out to earn her living and establish herself in her adopted city. She would have been like many other Irish women of the time in New York. They had a very low status, Domestics were probably the lowest of the things that Irish women might have gotten jobs uh, with at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. She lived with her aunt and uncle. She probably started in some sort of domestic work pretty early, probably still when she lived with them. We don't know the exact date of her aunt's death when Mary then became on her own. Mary was always guarded about her background and she never spoke of where she was from in Ireland. In her will, she said that after her aunt and uncle died without having children, that she was the last survivor of her family. She got herself hired pretty easily and she became a cook, which was the highest of the domestic jobs that an Irish immigrant woman might have aspired to in the domestic sphere. And by the time we actually pick up her record, which isn't until 1897, by then she is uh, very well established as a cook. She mostly lives in the homes of the people for whom she cooks. She was paid about twice what the other domestics in the house would have been paid. As far as I know, she had a nice disposition, nice character. She was well-liked by the other servants, and she apparently took a special liking to the children in the house. Mary's reputation as a cook meant she was able to find regular work through employment agencies. 
but she seems to move jobs a lot. She was working in, in the homes of the wealthy, and very often they would take her or hire her specifically for their summer vacations, which often took place out on Long Island in New York, where the beaches were and where many wealthy families summered. In the summer of 1906, Mary took a job with the family of Charles Henry Warren, a well-known social elite family in the city. They were holidaying in Oyster Bay for the summer and needed a cook. Now over 20 years living in America and in her late 30s, this was a job that would change Mary's life forever. Typhoid fever broke out in that family, among the staff and among the family itself. Nine-year-old Margaret Warren was one of those who contracted the disease. And as well as her cooking duties, Mary helped nurse the child as other members of the household fell ill from typhoid fever. Typhoid, it's also known as typhoid fever. It's caused by salmonella typhi. Mary Horgan is a professor of medicine in University College Cork and an infectious disease specialist. It's a bacterial infection. It's spread by eating or drinking food or water contaminated with uh, faeces of an infected person. So really the risk factors are poor sanitation, poor hygiene, people living in very densely populated situations. Like other cities around the world in the early 1900s, typhoid was one of New York's most serious health problems, with three to 4,000 new cases diagnosed every year. And the disease can be from mild to very severe. It usually presents with fever, pain in your tummy, constipation, some vomiting, and more unusually, diarrhoea. And without treatment, it can last for weeks to months. Today, typhoid is still a problem in some developing countries where there is poor sanitation, but it's controlled by medication and vaccines. But when Mary Mallon found herself in the middle of a typhoid outbreak, there were no antibiotics and a vaccine was just in the early stages of development. One in every 10 people who contracted the disease died. It wasn't very common in the upper echelons of society at the time. And the story that will unfold was probably triggered because of an outbreak in the upper class family with whom Mary worked. Back in Oyster Bay, six of the 11 people staying in the Warren house were infected with typhoid fever. Charles Henry Warren decided to pack up his family and go back to the relative safety of New York. Mary Mallon's services were no longer needed and she moved on. However, the owners of the house were worried about the stigma associated with having the disease in their property. And so they hired a sanitary engineer whose name was George Soper to investigate the outbreak of typhoid fever and see if he could determine where it came from. Was it in the plumbing in the house? Was it in the water in the bay, in the seafood that the family ate, or what? Soper had previously been hired by New York State to investigate disease outbreaks. He later wrote, I was called an epidemic fighter, having undertaken to see if there had been any carriers in the Oyster Bay house before the outbreak there occurred, I soon came through the process of exclusion to the cook. But where was she? And of course, he tracks it down first to Mary. She's the cook in the house. She's Irish. She's poor. She's a woman. And she's sort of like deemed the source of this illness. Mary's hot-cooked meals would have killed the infection, but, as Soper explains... I found, however, that on a certain Sunday there was a dessert which Mary prepared and of which everybody present was extremely fond. 
This was ice cream with fresh peaches cut up and frozen in it. I suppose no better way could be found for a cook to cleanse her hands of microbes and infect a family. The problem is that Mary isn't sick. Mary doesn't have any symptoms. Everybody else in the house is sick as dogs. How can we explain this disease by blaming it on Mary? But Soper had a theory. He had remembered reading just a couple years before this an article by Robert Koch, the famous German bacteriologist, who had posited that people who didn't have the disease of typhoid could transmit it. Soper believes that Mary was a healthy or asymptomatic carrier. But you'll appreciate in the early 1900s, it was a totally new concept. People assumed that if you had an infection, you would be sick from it. So to be told you had an infection that was potentially fatal to others and you were perfectly healthy yourself was unheard of. Soper set about solving the mystery using a method we are more than familiar with today, contact tracing. I tried to find out everything I could about her, but there was not much to learn. Mrs. Warren said she was a good plain cook. Her wages were $45 a month and she had been obtained from Mrs. Stricker's. Her name was Mary Mallon. That was about all. Through the employment agency that Mary used, called Mrs. Stricker's, Soper tracked and traced Mary's places of work from the summer of 1900 to the winter of 1906. He found a pattern. Typhoid fever had broken out in seven of the eight families she cooked for in that time. It seemed as if a trail of sickness and death was following her around. Like the job of today's public health officials, Soper knew he needed to find Mary's current whereabouts to try and stop the chain of infection. When at length I caught up with her, which was some four months after I started out on the Oyster Bay epidemic, Mary was working as cook in an old-fashioned high-stoop house on Park Avenue on the west side. The laundress had recently been taken to the Presbyterian Hospital with typhoid fever, and the only child of the family, a lovely daughter, was dying of it. So he went to that house and demanded of her that she give him samples of her feces, her urine, and her blood. It did not take Mary long to react to this suggestion. She seized a carving fork and advanced in my direction. She thought he was crazy, which is the logical thing for her to have thought. She was healthy. There was no reason why she would have thought she might have given anybody typhoid fever. And who was this man anyway coming into her kitchen and demanding such personal samples? So she threw him out. And there begins the saga (laughs) that develops over the next years. Despite Mary having chased him out of the house with a carving fork, Soper did not give in easily and decided to try another approach. At the time, Mary used to visit her boyfriend, August Breihoff, after work. Soper wormed his way into a friendship with him and tried once more to tackle Mary and get the specimens he needed. Mary was angry at the unexpected sight of me. And although I recited some well-considered speeches committed to memory in advance to make sure she understood what I meant and that I meant her no harm, I could do nothing with her. She would not allow anybody to accuse her. Again, I saw that I was making no headway, so I left, followed by a volley of imprecations from the head of the stairs. When she refused to go along with him, he went to the health department in New York City and said, you have to get her in and get her samples. I wanted to have her excretions examined at the department's research laboratory. I called Mary a living culture tube, 
and a chronic typhoid germ producer. And the health department was convinced enough by his argument that they tried to do that, and they sent a woman physician, S. Josephine Baker, who was an inspector in the health department, to find her and to bring her in. And Baker went to the house with a bunch of sanitary police officers, which was the typical way that you would try to isolate somebody who was sick, and found that in the home, where people certainly admitted they knew Mary Mallon, they insisted they did not know where she was at that moment. And it really turns out that the servants were feeling a great loyalty to Mary Mallon and refused to turn her into authorities. Mary was not giving in without a fight. They searched the next house, thinking maybe she had escaped that way. They found no trace of her. And they were just about to leave when Baker spotted a piece of calico from her dress uh, sticking out from a closet underneath the steps. They opened that door, and there, in fact, was Mary Mallon hiding. So they brought her in by force to be tested. And Baker sat on her, literally. She says she sat on her all the way in the ambulance until they got her to Willard Parker Hospital, which was the receiving hospital for infectious diseases in New York City. At the time, medical knowledge and understanding of asymptomatic carriers of disease was essentially non-existent. This made Mary Mallon's story all the more intriguing to doctors and health officials who set out to prove the theory of this emerging science. And there they tested her faeces and her urine and took blood also. And so they found, in fact, yes, she had typhoid bacilli in her body. The way it worked was that if she went to the bathroom and didn't wash her hands properly afterwards, she might have transmitted those bacteria from her hands into the food that she cooked, and then people who ingested it could be liable to get typhoid fever. So they proved in the laboratory what Soper had hypothesized earlier, that she was, in fact, the source of typhoid fever. This was a medical breakthrough. She was the first in the English-speaking world to be so identified, and it was Soper's work that led to that understanding. There had been one healthy carrier identified at the Pasteur Institute in Paris a few years before, but otherwise the concept of healthy carrier was brand new and was totally incomprehensible to people. They had no understanding that people who were healthy could transmit typhoid fever. Especially poor Mary herself who said, I never had typhoid in my life and have always been healthy. The New York City Board of Health had absolute powers when it came to controlling disease and could pass and enforce laws in relation to public health. Their response was swift and definitive. It was completely a shock and she was extremely upset, as you might imagine you would be if somebody came into your place of work and took you away (laughs) and isolated you. March 1907. So she was uh, then taken from the... Contagious Disease Hospital in New York City out to an island in the East River called North Brother Island. The 13-acre island is now a bird sanctuary and off-limits to the public. It was known as New York's Quarantine Island and had its own medical facility there called Riverside Hospital. In Mary's time, it was used for isolating patients with contagious diseases like TB. The island is only about 500 metres from the mainland, but remote enough that people couldn't escape. The only way to get there was by boat. This is Professor Mary Horgan. 
Quarantining is putting a person with an infectious disease into isolation so that you can break the chain of transmission so that the infection doesn't go from one person to the other. The duration of the quarantine is dependent on how long the person is infectious for. Mary was placed in indefinite quarantine with no idea of when or if it would end. We get some insight into her state of mind on North Brother Island from a six-page handwritten letter she wrote highlighting her plight. When I first came here, I was so nervous and almost prostrated with grief and trouble. My eyes began to twitch and the left eyelid became paralysed and would not move. It remained in that condition for six months. There was never any effort by the board authority to do anything for me except to cast me on the island and keep me prisoner without being sick nor needing medical treatment. Historian Judith Levitt has been to North Brother Island to see where Mary lived. Through her research over the years, she has spoken to people who knew Mary Mallon. She was given a bungalow, which was basically one room. It had uh, a lot of windows and so it was kind of a sunny little bungalow. It had a toilet, it had a kitchen. As well as Mary's handwritten letter, we have some quotes from her that appeared in the newspapers at the time. With what do I occupy my time? Oh, I get up in the morning, fix my room, eat my breakfast and then wait until it is time to go to bed again. Early reports were that the nurse would come to the door and leave some food for her every day and run away because she seemed to be so dangerous. But in fact, we know that that's an exaggeration of what her life was like because she did make some friends during that three-year period. One of those friends was a nurse called Adelaide Offspring, whose mother was Irish. And I've been there. It's a pretty big island. There were a lot of places to walk. There was the beach because she could look toward the mainland and yearn for it. Mary was never let forget the reason she was on the island. Every week, three times a week, her faeces were collected and tested so that they could continue to show if she was a continuing carrier. And she was, in fact, an intermittent carrier. That is, sometimes her faeces did not show positive bacilli and sometimes they did. There were also the experimental drugs Mary said she had to take, which doctors hoped would be a cure for her. I took the urotropin for about three months, all told, during the whole year. If I should have continued, it would certainly have killed me, for it was very severe. And they offered her surgery because they felt, and they probably were correct, that the bacteria had lodged in her gallbladder. And it was possible to have her gallbladder removed and still be relatively healthy. So they offered her that, thinking that would be a way to stop her from being a carrier. I said, no, no knife will be put on me. I've nothing the matter with my gallbladder. But this was in a time where removal of a gallbladder was a very serious operation. Professor Mary Horgan. This was in a time before antibiotics. So your risk from dying from removal of your gallbladder would have been very, very high and she declined it. And probably with good reason for her own personal health. Two years had passed since Mary was first quarantined on the island. And despite the stigma of being associated with the disease and the toll of being isolated without fully understanding the science or knowing when she would be released, Mary, now almost 40 years old, was determined to regain control of her life. They forgot about her, literally. They put her out on the island. Obviously, in the island, they knew she was there. But the health department got on to other things and really for months on end. 
forgot she was there. And so they weren't really considering at that point letting her go. Will I submit quietly to staying here a prisoner all my life? No. As there is a God in heaven, I will get justice. Somehow. Somewhere. A few more years of this life and I will be insane. Which is why she ultimately sued for her release. She found a lawyer who helped her sue the city in 1909, so that's two years plus after her initial capture. She ended up having a court hearing, finally, which is probably what she should have had in the first place. In court, Mary denied she ever had typhoid fever or caused it to others. I have been treated like a leper on North Brother Island. For two years I have occupied a house by myself and my only companion has been a little dog. Mary's attorney argued that she was arrested without due process, hadn't had a trial, was being coerced into a risky operation as well as experimental medication. He claimed too that George Soper's evidence was incomplete and at the core of it, an argument similar to what we're dealing with today, the balance between public health versus individual freedom. But Mary had reason to believe the system was stacked against her. Typhoid fever was still rampant in New York City and it was now reported that new screening procedures had uncovered at least 50 more healthy carriers of typhoid. But only Mary was in quarantine. New York isolated her and that's of course one of the conundrums about this story. Why did they go so quickly to isolation as the first resort rather than the last resort? And in fact, public health people around the country of the United States, they said that she was not dangerous per se, unless she cooked for somebody and transmitted the bacteria that way. And so they urged the city of New York to find other employment for her or try other remedies before isolating her. But I do think that who she was was extremely important to the way the health department handled her. you got to remember, this is a very different world in which these elites saw the world through the lens of class and also saw disease through the lens of class. David Rosner of Columbia University. That's the tragedy of Mary. She was the perfect victim. She was a woman. She was Irish. She was poor. She was a little pushy. She went after him with a knife. You know, I mean, she did everything she could to protect herself because she said, I don't have disease. I'm not sick. Maybe just as important is the fact that she was the first. And because she was the first, they wanted to make an example of her. And they did. And she actually was took the initiative of getting samples of her own stool taken to labs. Her lab said that she didn't have typhoid. The Department of Health lab consistently came out with her having typhoid. But the health department was not willing to back down. The health department mounted a very strong defense about keeping her isolated and telling the court that she was a menace to the public health. That was the term they used. And they wanted her to stay isolated. And the court, you know, with the authority and the doctors that the health department was able to muster, went along with it. The hearing took three hours and the case was dismissed three weeks later. Mary didn't get the freedom she hoped for. In fact, she got something else, unwanted notoriety. In the days leading up to the court case, the press had revealed her identity to the public for the very first time. On the 20th of June 1909, 800,000 readers woke up on a Sunday morning to a two-page spread in the New York American titled 
Typhoid Mary, most harmless and yet the most dangerous woman in America. Through no fault of hers, Mary Mallon is a living, walking incubator of typhoid fever germs. Owned by the publisher William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper was part of a style of journalism known for its lurid and dramatic stories. It was even rumoured that he had funded the court case to sell newspapers. The very first article about her depicts her, first of all, as very heavy set and kind of dark and evil in the sense that she is portrayed holding a frying pan, a skillet, and dropping human skulls into that skillet. Not eggs, as one would assume a cook might drop into a skillet, but the eggs are human skulls. And so the depiction is very negative, even though the opinion voiced in the rest of the article, and certainly public opinion as far as we can measure it in that time period, was quite sympathetic to her. They felt she was caught in something bigger than herself, and it was really too bad, and they they felt her dilemma and the fact that she was caught up in this machine that was bigger than she was. So typhoid Mary, if people use it, it's like being a leper. It's the same connotation that we had in past centuries where there were leper connollys. These are people to be avoided, they're trouble. If you touch them, you'll get infected, you'll die. So shun them, put them away. Mary's modern-day leper colony was in the island of Brooklyn. That's essentially how she was treated. We saw it subsequently with HIV infection and AIDS in the 1980s where people really were stigmatised and AIDS was associated with certain names. She was an example that people continued to point to, not only for the rest of her life, but to this day. When we talk about COVID, people talk about COVID Mary. And we know this depiction affected Mary deeply as we hear what she wrote in her only surviving letter. I have been, in fact, a peep show for everybody. Even the interns had to come to see me and ask about the facts already known to the whole wide world. Typhoid Mary, as she was now called, returned to North Brother Island after her defeat in court. She resumed her life of isolation without any indication as to when or if she would regain her freedom. What happened in 1910 was a new health commissioner was appointed in New York and looked over this situation and agreed with those national public health authorities who said it was not necessary to isolate her. His name was Ernst J. Lederley. I have taken a personal interest in her case and I am doing what I can for her. It seems to me that the people of the city ought to do something for her. He asked Mary to sign an affidavit promising to report monthly to the health department and more importantly quit the cooking trade. She has been released because she has been shut up long enough to learn the precautions that she ought to take. As long as she observes them, I have little fear that she will be a danger to her neighbours. The chief points that she must observe are personal cleanliness and keeping away from the preparation of other person's food. Now, I have to say, Mary Mallon was taught, I mean, she was told that she shouldn't cook for anybody because she might transmit the disease. I don't think she ever accepted that, ever, in her life. And it was because she never thought of herself as having had typhoid fever. It didn't seem logical. In fact, it wasn't logical (laughs) that she would be transmitting it. After three years in quarantine, Mary was now free. New York Times, February 21st, 1910. Typhoid Mary freed. Letterlay thinks she's learned to keep her germs to herself. Once back in the city, she moved back in with her boyfriend, August Bryhoff, 
and try to rebuild her life away from the glare of the media and the attention of the health department. And sadly for Mary, Ryhoff died of a heart attack the following year in 1911. And then she was really on her own after that. At the end of that same year, Mary made the headlines again. New York Times, December 3rd, 1911. Typhoid Mary asks $50,000 from City. Not a germ carrier and never had a contagious disease, she says. Her lawyer to file suit. Her standing as a cook has been injured by her three years' imprisonment as a public danger. But the case never got to court. Mary had to find work to survive. She started out in a laundry. Judith Levitt. She did continue to check in with the health department as she was required to do until 1914 when they lost track of her. A year later, there was an outbreak of typhoid fever in a New York City maternity hospital. Sanitary engineer George Soper was called in to investigate. One day, Dr. Edward B. Crajan at the Sloan Hospital for Women telephoned me asking that I come at once to the hospital to see him about a matter of great importance. When I arrived there, he said he had a typhoid epidemic of more than 20 cases on his hands. The other servants had jokingly nicknamed the cook Typhoid Mary. She was out at the moment, but would I recognize her handwriting if she was really that woman? He handed me a letter from which I saw at once that the cook was indeed Mary Mallon. The hunt for Mary began again. She called herself at that point Mrs. Brown, and so she hired out as a cook under a pseudonym. There wasn't the same safety net for Mary as there was for her male counterparts, who were also identified in the meantime as healthy carriers. One was isolated for two weeks and then released and employed by the city as a labourer. Another was let go because he was a wealthy businessman and another was offered free health care. Mary may have felt she had no choice but to return to cooking to survive. But whether known or unbeknownst to her, people were getting sick. Fearing detection, she had left the hospital and concealed herself in a friend's house. Her capture, by means of a ladder to the second-story window, was nearly as lively as her first one in 1907. In the Sloan Hospital outbreak, Mary was traced to a further 25 cases of typhoid, including two deaths. Public opinion, as seen in the press, had turned against her. The sympathy which would naturally be granted to Mary Mallon is largely modified for this reason. The chance was given to her five years ago to live in freedom, and, if the health department is rightly informed, she deliberately elected to throw it away. It is impossible to feel much commiseration for her. The public health department exerted their powers again, and on the 26th of March 1915, now aged 45, Mary was isolated on North Brother Island, where she would stay for the rest of her life. The second time she was on the island, and she knew at that point that it was hopeless, that she was not going to get her freedom back, and she knew that she had to kind of resign herself to this life, and in many ways made the best of it. Mary returned to the bungalow where she first stayed and resumed a life of incarceration in her open prison. She got work in Riverside Hospital, first as a domestic worker, then a hospital helper. And her next job there was the most unusual of all. She got a job on the island working in, the, ironically, the bacteriology lab, checking tuberculosis sputum on slides under a microscope. So on some level, she came to understand bacteriology. 
but still never accepted that she was a healthy carrier. Mary Mallon herself, I think, was very proud of her laboratory work and glad that she had employment and earned some money. I uh, was able to interview a person who worked with her at the Riverside Hospital Laboratory. The bacteriologist, whose name was Emma Sherman, told me that Mary was very pleasant as long as you didn't talk about typhoid fever. But once you did, she would get very upset, agitated, and uh, wouldn't want to talk about it. Mary was regularly checked for typhoid and continued to test positive as a carrier. And Emma herself was a little wary. I mean, if Mary offered her an apple, which she talked about one day that she did, she carefully put it away and didn't eat it because uh, she didn't want to be one of Mary Mellon's victims in that sense. She didn't want to eat food that Mary Mellon had handled. But other than that, they got along very well. Emma was quite fond of her, I think, from the way she talked about her. It was very fondly. And Mary, after a while was allowed to go back to the city on day trips. She would have to come back at night. And she did that and dutifully came back. And I think she had learned her lesson. In the years that followed on the island, world events passed Mary by. World War I, an uprising in Ireland, the Great Depression. She got letters from all over the world about her unusual case and even a marriage proposal from a man in Michigan. One day in December 1932, Mary didn't show up at the hospital as she always did. Mary didn't come to work one day. Since she had always been on time and always been there when she was expected to be there in the laboratory, uh, Emma Sherman came looking for her and found her collapsed on the floor of her bungalow. Mary was in her early 60s at this point. She had suffered a stroke and lost the use of her legs. She stayed bedridden in the children's ward of Riverside Hospital on North Brother Island for the rest of her life. And one of the friends that she made on the island, Adelaide Offspring was her name, she was a nurse, came to nurse her on the island. She had retired by then. And she came back to the island to nurse Mary Mallon in her final illness. Mary Mallon died six years later, on the 11th of November, 1938. She was 69 years old. Her funeral took place in St. Luke's Church, Manhattan, and she was buried in St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx. There were nine people there. She did have a small group of people who I think remained loyal to her and who felt very much that she was a good person who had been wronged by the city of New York. Mary had saved almost $6,000 from her work at the hospital, a large sum of money for those days. She donated $250 to the Catholic Church and she remembered her friends and her will. She gave her, her best friend, I guess her best friend, Adelaide Offspring, most of what she had, but she gave other families that she had stayed with before her first incarceration or during the interim when she was out. She gave them money and clothing and other things that she had accumulated. By the time Mary died, typhoid fever wasn't as dangerous to public health as it once was. Improvements in sanitation and the quality of drinking water, along with vaccines, meant cases were in decline in New York and around the world. But it would be another decade before antibiotics would be used to treat healthy carriers like Mary. I was able to attach 47 cases, 22 at first and 25 in the Sloan Memorial Hospital. 
uh, three deaths were associated with those cases. So it was a small number compared to the fact that in New York City alone, there were probably four or 5,000 new cases of typhoid fever every year. Four to 5,000. And we have 47 connected to her over a course of many years. So she was really a drop in the bucket of understanding the disease. But she was an important drop in that bucket because she did offer a new explanation for how the disease could be transmitted. This may have been poor consolation to Mary at the time, but the science around healthy carriers and how it impacts the spread of all infectious diseases is still relevant 100 years later as new diseases like COVID-19 continue to appear. The science that we learned from Mary's case has been one of the game changers in how we manage public health and infectious diseases. So that to me is the really positive as opposed to that negative labelling of her with typhoid Mary. And that is such a positive thing for infectious diseases and it was an Irish woman that taught us this. Mary Mallon always denied she was a carrier of typhoid. And that's not all Mary denied, because she never revealed her own true identity. When making her will, Mary refused to tell her attorney about her family. And after her death, there was an appeal for relatives to come forward, but none appeared. Her obituaries mentioned how she died in obscurity. She carried to the grave the secret of her background, Whence she came, how old she was, who her parents were. She was Irish, a good cook, and about 70. Those were the things known about her. The rest she guarded. Since then, modern history has gone on to record Mary Mallon as born in Cookstown, County Tyrone, in 1869. There was a Mary Mallon born in Cookstown that year, but to different parents to those named on Mary's death cert, John Mallon and Catherine Igo. There is just one marriage to match these names in Irish records, and that's in 1849 in the parish of Calo, County Longford. But Catherine Igo died a year before Mary was born. It's unclear how Mary Mallon is related to John Mallon and Catherine Igo, only that there must be a connection somewhere. There's even a Mary Mallon born in Longford in 1869 in the workhouse to an unmarried mother but we can find no obvious link to either John Mallon or Catherine Igo. Over time, records have been lost. Some records were never made. And within all of this lies the truth of who Mary Mallon really was. Even now, more than 80 years after her death, Mary has left us with questions that may never be answered. The documentary on one, The Curious Case of Typhoid Mary, was narrated by me, Sarah Blake, and produced by myself and Dorla Higgins. Sound supervision was by Patrick Harney. Readings were by Sarah Jane Scott, Roger Gregg and Bill Kernodal. Genealogical research was by Damien O'Sullivan and Liam O'Brien, and you'll find more about this research on rte.ie forward slash culture. Additional recordings were by John Doyle in Galway, John Goff in Cork, Karen Brady in Dundalk, Vincent O'Callaghan in the University of Ulster Coolrane, Paul Ruest and Miranda Schaefer in New York, and Noah Gilfinnan in Wisconsin. Thanks also to the staff at the Civil Registration Office in Longford, 
Alan Delosier in Seton Hall University, New York, Professor Ian Robertson in Dublin and Martin Morris, archivist with Longford County Council. If you'd like to join the social media conversation around this doc, tweet at rte.doc on one, comment on the documentary on one Facebook page or use the hashtag doc on one on any social media platform. And if you have a story or idea for a documentary or podcast series, please email us documentaries at rte.ie. Until next time, thanks for listening.